You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. And this series in October is titled Better to Give. We've been talking about generosity, the importance of generosity, sharing principles of generosity. If you were with us on the first week, I shared a few hindrances to generosity. And last week, our worship director, Dan, shared an awesome message. How many of you were here for that? Wasn't he great? He was amazing, yes. So he shared um, about a story that we find in scriptures of this lady who came to Jesus with, with a very expensive perfume. And she basically poured it all on him all at one time. And it was such a generous act that some of the, the Jesus' disciples even got thrown off by it. It was too extravagant. So extravagant they were like, this is a waste. It's too much. And, uh, but that's the kind of gratitude that she had for Jesus. And he shared uh, in that message also part of their story. It's on the podcast. It's on YouTube. I encourage you to listen to it. And today I want to continue with this series as part three of the series. And I want to teach uh, to you from the scriptures about tithe and offerings. The big one. The big one. Yeah. Where does it come from? Is this an Old Testament thing? Uh, is this like something that applies to you and I today? And I shared this on the first week when we started the series. It's, we've had over 190 Sundays. And this is the first time we do a series on giving and generosity. And this is the very first message ever that I do on tithing. So count yourselves lucky. All right. Yay. Now, <laughs> some of you, especially if this is your first time in church and you're not really a church person and, you know, you probably don't go to church because you've heard all your life that all the church wants is your money. Mm-hmm. I am glad you're here today. I'm really glad you're here today because I'm going to share from the scriptures and try to give you uh, some light on what uh, the scripture has to say about it. Or maybe, you know, you've seen TV preachers. Tell people that if they give 10, they can get 1,000 back. And on the back of your head, you're like, you, you were thinking, do people fall for that? What a scam. I can't believe that. I'm glad you're here as well. Because your problem was never, probably never with God. And probably never with the church or itself or with the scriptures. Probably with the people. And that's why I want to share from the Bible today. What the Bible has to say so we can have a, a, a more comprehensive mind. We hear a lot about it and uh, we don't explore a lot uh, on what the scripture actually has to say. So, And maybe, you know, there's a third group of people here where you've been in church your whole life. And still, this is a word that is not your favorite. You know, you hear it and it just makes you uncomfortable. It's one of those words where every time you hear... It's, it's like nails on a chalkboard. It's just creepy. It creeps you out. You know, you hear somebody on stage talk about offerings and tithes. You start tapping your pockets. Make sure you still have your wallet. <laughs> okay, it's still here. I still have everything. I am glad you're here today. Because our heart is just to shed some clarity uh, on this subject. You know, it's not, it's not to try to get you to... Uh, uh, 
this is not, it originated, this, uh, this subject originated in the scripture. And I want to share today why it's important and why it might be the thing that's missing in your life. So this is what I was trying to say before. And I'm going to say now, I'm going to put you at ease today, okay? This is not a fundraising message. Okay, this is, there's not going to be a special offering at the end of the service or a pledge. This is not a sales pitch. I'm just making things clear here so you can sit back, listen, read the scriptures with me, and allow God to speak to you on this area of generosity so that you know that this is, this is just me sharing with you uh, of what we believe as a church, what the scripture has to say about it. Because I believe that in the area of finances... And I shared this in the first week. But the Bible has a lot to say about it because it's an area that we all deal with. And many times it's an area that can cripple you. You know, if, if, if you don't have enough and you have a family to feed, if you don't have enough and you have rent to pay, if you don't have enough, it, 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 you, you can't be at rest. You can't be relaxed. You can't be at peace. And I believe that God wants you to live in peace. So God's provision for you is not just a matter of you having something better or having more so that you can brag about having more. It's about you living a life of peace where you can live in your talents and you can develop your talents. Where you can afford to, to bless your children so that they can go further than you in life. And that's what, all we, that's what we all want, right? To be able to lead a kind of life where we are inspiring others. Where we have enough to give not only uh, for us to cover our expenses. But for us to give specifically in the area of finances. So I wanted to give you some clarity. And uh, uh, you know just share from the scripture. Because I do believe that the enemy tries to send us bad thoughts in this area specifically. Uh, because he doesn't want us to be free. In this area. So let's, let's get into it. I'm going to read a lot of scriptures because I want you to make, your own, make up your own mind from the scriptures. And I'm going to share some of the things that God has been speaking to me uh, throughout uh, the, the time that I've been praying and preparing for this series. And today, so we're talking about the tithe. The tithe, this word tithe, a lot of people don't, don't understand. It's just a simple old English word that means the tenth part. That's all it means. There's nothing holy about it. It just means the tenth part part or 10%. Now, some people think that the tithe was directly connected to the law of Moses, that Moses was the one who instituted in the, in the Old Testament in the law to the people of Israel. But actually, it started much uh, uh, before that, uh, long before that is when the tithe, the practice of tithe started. So I'm going to share a few stories from the scripture and we're basically going to go through the whole scripture. I'm going to go from Genesis all the way to Corinthians with you, okay? We're going to read some today, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be awesome. And I hope that today you will, uh, your understanding will be broadened and you'll be able to talk about this with some scripture knowledge, all right? So when Abraham, who was a descendant of Noah, he had been called by God, just this, this random Aramean, as in Hebrews we find out, and some, some scholars believe that he was an Edomite. God just picked him out of the crowd and chose him and made a covenant with him and said that from him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he called him and said, leave your, your land, leave your family and go to a land that I'll show you. He did. He picked everything up. Some of you know the story. And he moved. 
And it got to a point where he and his nephew, his nephew came along, had to separate. They had to separate. Their, their employees weren't getting along, so they separated. Lot picked a very good land by the Jordan Valley. Beautiful green land, and it was part of the land of Sodom in the Old Testament. And this land was great, but the people, Scripture says, they were wicked. And so Lot encamped there, got his whole set up there, and Abraham went to the other side. He went to the opposite side to a land called Hebron, which wasn't as good. It wasn't as pretty. It wasn't as fertile, but uh, he gave his nephew the preference. After that happened, there was a battle between nine kings, five kings against four kings. And then back in those days, there were city-states where each city had its own king. So four kings came against five kings, and the four kings plundered the five kings. They defeated the five kings. Some of those kings among the five were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were able to flee, but the kings that won the battle took some of the people and the spoils with them. And along with the people, Lot was taken captive. Lot, Abraham's nephew. Abraham heard about it. And he got 318 of his men, his fighting men that he had trained that was part of his house. And he went and pursued those four kings. And Abraham, along with some other people that helped him, defeated. He fought them through the night and he defeated the four kings that had defeated the five ones. You're tracking with me? He got them uh, to return all the spoils. He brought all the spoils back and he returned everything that belonged to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he returned his, uh, he brought his nephew back as well. When he came back from that victory, victory, from that battle, we don't think of Abraham as a warrior. We don't think of him as somebody leading charge of an army. But that's what he did. He had trained men and he led that charge. He came back and this happened. He presented himself before God to a priest called Melchizedek. And this is what happened. Scripture tells us, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies unto your hand. And Abram, that was his name before God changed it, gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first time we hear of the tithe in scripture. We hear of offerings before this, but this is the first time that this pattern of giving tenth is shown in this light. And, and this is important because you, you got to understand the context. And that's why I'm sharing these stories with you. So you understand the context of where the tithe began. After he had battled, after God had delivered him, after he brought back his nephew and he brought back the spoils of war and returned it to their kings, he came to God and said, thank you, God, for this victory. And that's when he presented God an offering to Melchizedek. Fast forward two generations, Jacob Abraham's grandson. Jacob is the son of Isaac, the son of the promise. Jacob is a twin brother. He's the youngest of the two. And the firstborn blessing, the firstborn uh, hierarchy in the Old Testament meant a lot. In the ancient world, it meant a lot. Because if you're the firstborn, not only are you the preferred one, but you get to carry on the family legacy. You get to receive all the inheritance. When Abraham died, he left everything to Isaac. And all, he other's kid, all he other, the other kids, he just gave him some gifts. 
Scripture says. But Isaac got everything. So this was a big deal. Everything that was Abraham's that was uh, uh, left to Isaac now could be Esau's. But Jacob found a way to trick his brother out of the firstborn right. He got his brother to sell his firstborn right to him. And he tricked his dad to bless him instead of his brother. Needless to say, his brother was very angry at him. He wanted to kill him. He said, as soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. And so Isaac, knowing about this tension in the family, this is family drama, guys. This is like, you know, God sends an op- a promise and you think it's going to be all beautiful. No, it's not beautiful. There's family drama right here. So Esau, just to get back at his parents, goes and marries somebody that's foreign. It makes his parents very, very uh, um, uh, annoyed. And, and uh, uh, I can't remember the word there that, that, that uh, Rebecca describes. But uh, she is flustered. Uh, her life is not easy because of, of the, the, ta- the challenge and the, the, the tension between the two families. And so Isaac has an idea. I'm going to protect my son. Not only going to take him away from here so he's not, Esau is not a threat to him. But so he can go to the land of Abraham and marry somebody who is of our people. And so he sends Jacob out. And Jacob is out, out there alone, lonely, hiding, running for his life and hoping to find a wife. Anybody can say amen? Any of the single guys here can uh, attest to that? Alone, lonely, looking to find a wife. Lord, I think he's talking about me, not Jacob. (laughs) I kid. I kid. God's got your back, guys. It's going to be good when he does. Show it. So God appeared to Jacob in a dream. He's asleep. He's alone. God appears to him. And this is what God tells him. Genesis 28, 13, verse 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land of which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Uh, verse 15. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely... The Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Sometimes God is with you and you just don't know. Until he manifests himself. It's not that you're alone. He's always with you. But then he shows himself to Jacob. And he has this realization. God is here. He called the name of that place Bethel. Which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, listen to this, and I will, and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. Look at what he's talking about, the needs, everything that, that he was worried about because he didn't have enough. You get it? He didn't have enough and he was worried about provision and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. He wished to go back to his dad's house. If God will do that for me, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house, Bethel. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So this is the tithe being replicated from Abraham to his grandson, Jacob, after he met God and God supplied and God showed himself to him as an act of worship, as an act of gratitude, he vows 
to give God the tithe. When he was no longer alone, when he realized that his life was not by chance, when he realized that there was a promise in his life, that his life had a purpose, his reaction, what, 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 he, what he had in his heart was, I'm going to vow to you, God. And I'm going to bring you a tenth, percent, a tenth of everything that I, that I make. So this is how the tithe preceded the law. There are some other references to it. But the tithe preceded the law, being part of a greater context. It wasn't just a financial transaction or an imposition from God. God didn't show up to Abraham and say, hey, give me my cut. I'm blessing you. I want a finder's fee right now. It wasn't like that. God didn't show up to Jacob and say, hey, here's the promise that I have for you. I'm only going to fulfill it if you give me some, some of it. It wasn't like that. It was Jacob in his heart having this sense of, I, I got to bring something to God. And I'm going to make a vow right here that I'll be faithful to you. And I'm going to show, show you or, or tell you that you are number one. And we learned this in Deuteronomy that the tithe, even when it became part of the law, it wasn't just a transaction. It was part of something bigger. In Deuteronomy verse 14, verses, uh, uh, chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, we read this. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock. Listen to this. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. They would bring the tithe, and it could be an animal or grain, and they would offer it up to God. And we don't have a lot of time to go into what the ritual was about. But sometimes, because most of it was food, after offering it up to God, after the incense would go up, after the offering was done, they would eat together. And that's what the scripture is saying here, that you will eat the tithe when after you, you make the offering. But the point of this passage that I want you to pay attention to is that at the end of it, it says this, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. And here we learn the purpose of the tithe in the Old Testament and why it became part of the law. The lesson here is not give God 10% or else, is that there is something about generosity that teaches you how to fear God. There's something about generosity that teaches you that there's something greater than the possession that you have. There's something greater that you got to submit what you have to. Which brings me to another story. You fast forward. After the law. After Moses. Years later. After Moses. After Joshua. After the conquests. After the judges. After David became king. 200 years after King David died. There's a king that arises in Judah. And by now the kingdom is split. There's Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They're not, they don't have the same king. The nation is split and divided because of the sin of Solomon. And Hezekiah becomes king. At the tender age of 25, he becomes king of Judah. He becomes king because his dad died. When he became king, the kingdom was in shambles. It was in a really bad shape. Judah was in a bad, bad shape. His dad was not a good king. King Ahaz, which was Hezekiah's dad, had made some poor choices. He had turned his back on God. He had sealed the temple doors. He, scripture says that he took every artifact of the temple and cut it to pieces as an affront to God. He built temples for other gods. 
And because of it, he got defeated by every single enemy. The Edomites defeated them. The Philistines defeated them. The Syrians took some people captive. And even Israel, same family, even Israel fought against Judah and defeated them. At last, Ahaz tried to come to the Assyrians, which was also part of his enemies, for help. Say, hey, let's make a treaty. Please help me out. And the Assyrians said, sure, come on over. And they took advantage of that and afflicted them instead of strengthening them. That's what the scripture says. So Ahaz was not a good king. And by the time Hezekiah became king, Israel was in a bad, bad shape. Really bad shape. So Hezekiah begins to put things in order. He begins to restore Israel. And how does he do that? He's a legend in the Old Testament because of what he did. How did he do that? First thing he did, he cleansed the temple. He opened up the doors of the temple. He cleansed the temple and got it prepared for worship. Second thing, he restored temple worship. God, you're first. We're going to worship you. Consecrated the, the, the elements of the temple and called the people to make sacrifices to God again. Then he celebrated a Passover. Reminding people who delivered them. Reminding people that they were delivered from Egypt by Almighty God. He brought him back their history, their uh, connection to the Lord as their deliverer. And then he prayed for the people and asked God for forgiveness. This is what he prayed. God forgive the people. And the, in, in 2 Chronicles 30.20 we learn this. That the Lord heard Hezekiah and he healed the people. And after God began to bless the people, he called them. To bring offerings to the temple. He began to call people to give to the house of God. And to give things and praise to God. And this is where we pick up 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 31 verse 5. As soon as he commanded. Or as soon as the command was spread abroad. The people of Israel gave in abundance of the first fruits of grain. Wine, oil, honey. And all of the produce, uh, produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. I'm giving you these stories so you, you, get, you get to see the context of it in Scripture. Why did they bring the tithe? Because God restored them. Because King Hezekiah set the leadership for them to go back to God. And, and this was part of their worship. People began to tithe again. And as they began to tithe again, Scripture says that their crops and their cattle and their business began to prosper. And they begin to get more. And as they got more, the tenth part got bigger. And they begin to bring it to the house of God. And they had to pile all the elements into heaps. Big piles. And it got so big that the piles began to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as the tithe was bigger, the piles got bigger. Seven months later, on the seventh month, King Hezekiah comes in to check on everything. Make sure that they have enough supplies. Because it was important to him that the temple would have enough supplies. He comes in and he gets surprised. He's so surprised at how much they have. He's almost concerned for the people. So he asks them, what, what, what happened? Like, wh how much, uh, how did you get all this, in other words? What's all this? Where did this all come from? And uh, this is where we find in the scripture, verse 10. Azariah, the chief priest, who was of the house of Zadok, answered him, Since they begin to bring the contributions into the house of the Lord, we have eaten and had enough. And have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people. So that we have this large amount left. And this is what I want you to understand today. 
from all these stories. I have a couple more still in the scriptures. Tithing is not a financial transaction. Offering is not a financial transaction. We say this often here, but I wanted to give you some context today. So that you understand in your relationship with God. This is not like an, a financial insurance policy. Where you, you give to God just to make sure that you have guaranteed success. You know, it's not simply, uh, uh, God, here, I need more provision. Here's something. This is more about you coming to God and saying, God, you're my number one. I trust you above all else. That's the heart that we should have, which is consistent with the scriptures. God, you are above all else. You are number one. There is no one above you. Therefore, I'm going to bring you some of my fruits, some of the work, uh, the fruit of the work of my labor. So it's not about finances. It's worship. It's about the heart. And this might be a foreign concept to you, especially if you didn't grow up in church. And this is your first time in church and you're hearing about money and tithing and offering. This is weird. This is weird. Well, it's not if you think about the concept of gifts. We grow up with this concept, right? Think about when you give a gift to a friend or somebody you love. Whether it's their birthday or just because. You bring them a gift. Whatever it may be. It's not the item that's valuable. The item will perish. will be thrown away eventually. It won't fit anymore. It's going to get ripped, worn out. Whatever it is that you give, the value is not inherent on that thing. The value is the love. The value is the care that you have in your heart. The item is just a carrier. The, the item just represents your feelings. What you have on the inside. That's what the gift is about. And all the ladies say, amen. amen. <laughs> That's what it's about. The fellas too. You can say amen too, guys. Right? We like gifts too, don't we? That's right. That's right. The true gift is the love that you have for that person. And it's the same thing with God. See, when, when you give God of your finances, you're coming to God like Abraham saying, God, you delivered me. I fought some enemies and you delivered me. And I know that I couldn't have done it by myself. I couldn't have defeated four kings with 318 men after they just defeated five cities. You were there with me. You gave me strength. Therefore, I'm going to recognize you and honor you. When you give to God, you're giving like Jacob who was alone but didn't realize that God was with him. And when God met him, when he revealed himself to him, when he showed himself to him and made a promise to him, and he got the epiphany, my gosh, my life has a purpose. I was made for a purpose. I am on this earth for a purpose. Therefore, I'm going to worship you with what you have given me. Because you have given me. When you come to God with your offerings, you come like Hezekiah. Saying, God, forgive our, uh, our transgressions. You know, maybe you're not a king who took over things for you, from your dad. But maybe you have some, some regrettable things in your family line. Maybe you've, your family has done some things in the past that you don't want it to be part of your life. And you realize that God has called you to newness of life. That you don't have to be attached to your past. You realize that you don't have to repeat the mistakes of your parents or your grandparents or of your uncles or aunts or brothers. You don't have to repeat their mistakes or be attached to that curse. 
You can build a new life. Why? Because God has empowered you to do so. He has given you the power. He has given you the voice. He has given you the vision. He has given you the ability. And he has cleansed you. Therefore, we bring him our gifts. That is the context of our offering. Which brings me to the next story. That famous story or passage in Malachi that you've probably heard if you've been in church for like three days. <laughs> Malachi 3.10. If you don't bring to the Lord, you're robbing the Lord. It's in the Bible. It's actually in the Bible. But it's part of this context. After 130 years after Hezekiah, 130 years after King Hezekiah did all that and restored Judah, the people went back. They went back to their old ways. They turned their back on God. And this is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Judah, defeated it, destroyed it, and took the people of Judah captive out of Judah. And he took them captive. And part of that group was Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I don't know if you remember that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abnego were the three, that they were the Babylonian names. But Nebuchadnezzar's intention was to erase Hebrew culture. That's why he seized them. That's why he took them captives. He didn't just want them to be, Hebrew, uh, to be prisoners. He wanted the Hebrew people to become Babylonians. That's how he wanted to reach world domination. So I'm going to take them captives, and I'm going to turn them into Babylonians. Well, he didn't succeed completely. But there was a shift in culture. After the exile, after the people of Israel got freed from the Babylonian um, exile, the people came back from the exile and they were very loose in their reference with God. They didn't have that heart of worship that Abraham had or that Moses had or that Jacob had or that David had or that Hezekiah had. They didn't have that heart for God. And it took Nehemiah. In the Old Testament, to sternly call the people and inspire the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In the same era, it took Haggai, the prophet, to sternly call the people to give him passion and remember of the purpose of the temple. And so they rebuilt the temple. Very much so, like Hezekiah. It took Malachi and Zechariah's strong prophecy of rebuke to remind the people... That they were supposed to live differently. See, socially and morally, they had decayed. They had gone down the wrong path. The men weren't being faithful to their wives. So in Malachi, there's a stern call for fidelity. Because the men are not being faithful to their wives and not honoring marriage. They weren't taking marriage seriously. Worship was haphazard. They weren't worshiping wholeheartedly. They were doing it because, you know, that's, that's what we used to do and whatever, you know, people. It wasn't, their hearts weren't in the right place. And their offering to God wasn't sincere. They weren't bringing God their best. They were bringing God their rest. Whatever I got left, yeah, sure. So God was not first in their lives. And this is the context of Malachi's rebuke. You have to understand God was trying to protect them from another impending situation. Why? Because they had just gotten out of exile and they were complaining that God wasn't appearing to them or loving them or being kind to them. And this is what we read 
in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall, you, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. This is God speaking. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And here's God's heart coming now. Why is he doing this? And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that I, it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God was not trying to get something from them. Listen to how many times God said, you, your, I'm trying to bless you. I'm trying to do something for you, but you're living lackadaisically. You are you are living in a way that you are not putting me first. You're living by your passions. You're not allowing the tithe to produce the fear of God that is meant to produce. That was the context of that passage. So when you hear that, remember that. When the word says that, he, that, that when God asked them to bring the full tithe, it means that they were bringing some. They're like, yeah, sure. I'm not paying attention to this. It's all right. Jesus echoed those words. Going into the New Testament now. When he rebuked the Pharisees, talking about the tithe, Jesus echoed those words against the religious authorities. And he said this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? You tithe of the mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing the camel. That's strong words. Strong words. Why? The scribes and the Pharisees were the religious authorities of the day. They were the Hezekiahs, so to speak, in, in, in terms of influence. And they were bragging about their tithe. Showing the people, look at how righteous I am. <laughs> Do you like that? I'm like, what? That's basically what they were doing. Bragging on their generosity. They weren't giving unto God. They were giving unto themselves. They weren't allowing the offering to change their heart. They weren't allowing it to produce the fruit. What is the fruit? Mercy. Forgiveness. Treat people right. They weren't doing that. So Jesus rebukes them not to reduce the value of the tithe. Because what else, why else would Jesus mention the tithe? He was saying this is supposed to produce that. To produce that. And I can't see the fruit of what a true worship produces in your heart. If you were doing this with the right heart. There would be a change in your heart. There would be a transformation. If you were bringing the tithe as you're supposed to bring, 
like Abraham did, like Jacob did, like Hezekiah did. Your treatment of people and your living out of the scriptures would have been different. But you are engaging in this as just a duty, as a practice so you can show off. Jesus had a higher, a higher standard for giving. Much higher. In fact, in the, in the scriptures, if you pay attention to it, every time he would mention the law, he would up the ante. He would say things like, do not murder. You have heard it said. You have heard it said, do not murder. I say, if you're angry with your brother, to the point of insulting them, don't even bring an offering. Go fix it with him. Go make things right first. Then you can come and bring your offering to God. He said things like, you heard, do not commit adultery. Here's him echoing Malachi again, talking about the, the honor of the marriage and faithfulness to husband and wife. You heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, if you even look at a woman with lust in your eyes, and you imagine that you lay with her. You laid with her. He said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye. Proportionate retaliation in the Old Testament was a huge development. And in the law, if somebody punched you in the face, you couldn't go back and kill them. You couldn't go back and cut their arm off or steal their property or cut them. Couldn't do it. But you could punch, punch them back. That was okay. Eye for an eye. Don't go overboard. Proportionate retaliation. Eye for an eye. Jesus said, you've heard it, eye for an eye. I say, if somebody, if somebody slaps you in the face, let him do it again. And again. He raises the bar. And he does the same thing when it comes to giving. I'm skipping a scripture here, Jacob. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. This is what Jesus said. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, sell your possessions, and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where the thief approaches and moth destroys. For your, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke, Luke 6.38, he says this, Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. What he is saying is, the heart of the message is, be unattached to things. Don't allow things to hold you back. Don't allow the love for money to drive your life. But be, live life open-handedly. He yupped. Yenti, when he came to giving. And the heart of today's message is not to get you to put the tithe as a line on your checkbook, as a duty, to have, to have, to have giving as, as an expense on your budget. You might do that. We do that. It's right there in our budget. And I give to the first check that I write is to this church because I believe in what God is doing here. I do believe in the tithe. We've been doing it our whole lives. But our heart is not for you to put like, try to get you to put Connect Community on your spreadsheet. Our heart is for you to understand that giving to God is an act of worship. And it should be because it has been from the beginning. From Genesis all the way 
to the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, the scripture says this, and this is a few practical things for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5 through 8. So I thought it necessary, this is Paul talking to the church in Corinth, to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good works. See, this is great for all kinds of giving. And notice what the scripture says there. Three things that I want you to take to heart today. First is arrange in advance. Arrange in advance. See, giving shouldn't be impulsive. It shouldn't be under compulsion and it shouldn't be, oh, I'm just going to right now. It should be planned. It should be consistent and planned. So let me encourage you today to be a planned giver. Plan to give. Do make a plan out of that heart of worship. And that heart for God. Second thing is this. Decide it in your heart. In other words, don't give under compulsion. Don't allow pressure or, you know, any, any outside uh, voice to shame you into giving. Especially going into uh, the, the, the season now. There's a lot. You're going to be asked a lot from everywhere. But decide in your heart, which means this. Pray to God. God, how should I distribute what you have given me? Where should I sow? How should I take part in this giving and then give intentionally as God leads you? Because He will lead you to use your resources. And then thirdly, give cheerfully. Give with joy. That means this. Realize that God has done so much to you. Look for things to be grateful for and then give with that heart of gratitude. Now we have lived this, like I said. I've tithed my whole life. I believe in it, and that's my conviction. And personally, I've seen God show up in our lives. Alini and I have seen after we got married too. And, you know, we are testimonies of this. So I'm, I'm speaking from a full heart here this morning. And I hope that you get the heart that this is not an imposition, but this is an act of worship. You know, I can share with you that just four years ago, to the month four years ago, we were in a very, very tough situation. You know, life was complicated. We didn't know how we were going to make it. And my parents were scheduled to come visit. I hadn't seen them in four years. And they hadn't been in the States in close to eight years up to that point. And they were supposed to come and land on Veterans Day, November 11th, 11-11, 2014. And I didn't know how I was going to make it. I'm like, I wanted to treat them well. I wanted to welcome them. But money was running out. And... We had our three-year-old daughter, but Alini had just delivered our two twin daughters, Chloe and Peyton. And they were born premature. They had to stay in the NICU up in Danbury Hospital for 28 days. So 28 days we went up every single day to see them. And money was going, and we were scraping the bottom of the pot. And, but we were just happy that they were alive. You know, and they were fighting. I think we have a couple pictures there of... The two little ones. That's them in the, 
in the incubator. We, we didn't get a chance to hold them until week three. And that's Chloe and Peyton. You can go back to the, that's when I got to hold them for the first time. You can go back to that first one. You can see all the tubes in, in them because they were fighters. You know, from, from, from the beginning, they were fighting. They were fighting to breathe. That's why they had those big tubes in their nose. They, they couldn't breathe on their own. They were fighting to eat. They couldn't swallow because they were born too early. They were fighting to keep warm. That's why they were in the incubator. And we were carrying that weight. And every day, things got a little better. Every day, they would fight. And we would go in the room and play worship and pray for them. That's Selene's hand right there holding them. So you can see how tiny they were. And then, um, you know, we still had our three-year-old. There's a picture of Amaya there, too, back in the day. Look at that. So cute. And life was complicated. You know, I left home at 19 to marry this beautiful lady to which I'm still married to, happily. Yeah, she's awesome. And I've never had to ask my parents for anything. Never had to ask my parents for money. God has always provided. It hasn't always been easy, but he has always provided. And now my parents are coming in, and I want to show them a good time. And money was gone. It felt like a struggle. But if you were to ask that guy, you can put my picture back up. If you were to ask that guy right there with probably about $24 in the bank account, maybe $32, maybe a little more, how's it going, JD? I'd say, I'm blessed. I am blessed. We were full of hope, full of joy. Why? Because even though money was gone, we had Almighty God, and He's much greater. So this is why it's important to hold God and place Him where He should be. And that's what offering is about. It's not about how much you give. It's about you saying, God, you're number one. You are the first. Whether I have it or whether I don't, I can trust in you. Because I know that your promises will come true. So giving it's not a gimmick. You know, and maybe this is new to you, especially giving in church. But where else can you give God an offering? Where else can you come to God and say, God, this is for you? Now, as a church, we have taken every, every um, precaution and everything that is allowed to, to make sure that the funds given are applied properly. We have a board, we have a trustee board, we have everything that's needed to be. And you can learn more about that at Starting Point and talk about it. But beyond that, it's your heart. Like I said earlier, your gift is a representation of what's on the inside. And never let that phase out. Every time you bring God a gift, don't just let it be a transaction. Don't just do it because, you know, I got, I got to help something out. Don't, I, I'll even say this. This is, pastors would tell me not to say it. Don't even do it just, I'm just trying to help the church. No. Give to God. Give with your heart and say, God, I'm sowing into your kingdom here on earth because I believe in it. Because you have changed my life. Because you have reached down where I was and you have healed me. You have given me a new life. So when you give, do it that way. I don't know what God is speaking to you right now, whether it's you're in a place like Jacob where, you know, you 
look back in your family and, and you're trying to start, or Hezekiah, I should say, you look back in your family and you want to start a new story. You want, to, you want, you want to, something new. Or maybe you're here this morning and you just want to meet God. You feel like you're alone. Maybe you're like Abraham. You fought some battles and you're glad that God was with you. Or maybe you're in the middle of it right now and you need him to show up. Whatever situation you are in, God is here for you. And he doesn't ask anything from you. He's willing to help you. He wants to see you flourish. So today, I want to encourage you to be a giver because it is truly better to give. Do you receive it this morning? Amen. Amen.